This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, and that's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 161. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Hey, as you heard at the top, again, I'm very thankful for uh, our show's sponsor. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Friedman LLP. Friedman, everybody there, thank you very much for sponsoring this episode. And again, save the date. The Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual is taking place April 20th through 22nd, 2021. The website is live now, so you can find the full details on the event at www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. And registration is now open, so feel free, go click register, follow the instructions, and you'll be all set. So uh, we have a lot of announcements regarding the Planet Microcap Showcase coming up. So be sure to register so you get those as soon as we make them. So uh, very excited to see you all there. Uh, now you might be wondering, uh, you know, a little different background here. I'm, you know, got a little beanie action going on. You know, a little personal update. My wife and I, we're stuck in Austin. Uh, if you've been following me on Twitter, I posted a few photos of what's going on down here. And uh, again, for those who are listening, may, maybe not watching this video, I'm actually recording this from our hotel room and check it out. It's like, I don't know, it's a little dark, but look, it's like a little whiteout action going on here. So uh, we got snow and everything and uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, you know, to all those who are affected by this right now, I, you know, our hearts are with you. This is, this is very, uh, it's, <laughs> you know, 2020 wasn't up. Look at this, where we're starting 2021. 
but, uh, you know, actually, I thought this was kind of interesting, but the reason the roads are actually so icy here in Austin is that when the roads were laid here, they only put down two layers. So in states where they get colder temperatures and experience snow and ice, three layers of asphalt are put down and the third layer has holes in it so that water from rain and snow can then drain so that the roads don't get icy when the temperatures drop. Uh, Austin and Texas in general, they, they didn't realize that they were, we were going to have the, the storm of the century uh, <laughs> this year. Uh, so we're here we're and, and hopefully uh, for not that much longer. But big shout out to everybody at the Fairmont Austin. The whole staff has been in, incredible and very helpful. And, um, and we're very thankful. So uh, now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Alex, better known as the science of hitting on Twitter. I first heard Alex on Toby's podcast to discuss his never sell investing philosophy. And, and I've really been a fan ever since. So today's show is all about the science of hitting bombs and not selling yourself short. You know, shout out to less than Jake. And uh, we, we had a lot of fun and I, and I hope you do too while hearing our chat. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 161 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Alex. back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I am your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And we have an awesome guest for you today. Joining me, semi-anonymous. It's, a, it's not full anonymous. It's kind of, it's a semi-anonymous uh, Alex. He goes by the handle at T-S-O-H underscore investing on Twitter. It's the science of hitting. I think we might become best friends because baseball happens to be my favorite sport as well. So with that, Alex, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm uh, trying. I'm doing well. You mean the baseball team of Cleveland? There you go. Yeah, we don't know what our name is yet, but it'll be something good. And uh, the anonymous thing, if I keep doing these video interviews, it's, it's not going to last much longer. So, <laughs> <laughs> and some, and No, I mean, I think what you should do is you just, it's Alex. It's just one name. That's it. You know, no last name, go. no nothing. You become like uh, the, the, the prince of, uh, of, of Fintwit at this point. You know, just the one <laughs> name or eventually it'll be a symbol. But yeah, we'll uh, see. We'll see how that goes. Prince of Fintwit. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good stuff. All right, man. Well, I wanted to start off, you know, I usually ask about background and all that kind of stuff at, at the beginning, but I figured this, I, I don't think you've done an interview since we've been in 2021 yet. And, you know, you're very active on Twitter. You love giving your insights and whatnot. So kind of would love to, to get your initial take on 2021. It's already been kind of a gauntlet of a year. And, uh, you know, from Robinhood, GME, markets hitting all-time highs, crypto hitting all-time highs. You know, uh, almost every fund manager we know is reporting an incredible performance for 2020. You know, so uh, how should we process all this? You know, what, what, what's your take on, on 2021? Yeah, you know, for me, it probably goes back to, to March when thing or February, March, I guess, of last year when things were really starting to to get crazy in markets. And, you know, it's kind of funny for me, that period, obviously, it was it was devastating for for the world and for people personally. So I'm not discounting that at all. But for me as an investor, it was probably the first time in a while that I'd felt really good about the opportunities that I was looking at. And in a weird way, that made me comfortable. And uh, we, we've quickly in less than a year gone back to <laughs> the prior state, which is 
uh, being a bit confused about valuations and, you know, struggling to find, can find plenty of good businesses, but it seems to me that in almost all of those cases, you, you need to have such a view on duration and the ability to grow for long periods of time that it gets difficult for me. You know, I, I can live with paying up for five years of growth, but when you're talking about 10, 15, 20 years, it just starts to get hard for me in the context of, of what I've seen businesses do over the past 10 or 20 years. So it makes it really difficult. Um, you know, you layer on top of that, the craziness we've seen with crypto and, you know, people essentially day trading, you know, I'm 31. I have a bunch of friends who never have cared about investing at all, who are all now Robinhood clients and they're trading AMC and Tesla and everything. And I also see what's happening with people trying to buy homes and prices are just going higher and higher. And it just makes me uncomfortable. It really makes me uncomfortable when people who have better things, you know, these, these are police officers and firefighters. They, they have things to worry about in their day to day. And when they start focusing on investing and really short-term price action, it just makes me feel uneasy. And I, I generally think that probably doesn't turn out well. And obviously I have no idea on the timing, but yeah, so 2021 has been crazy, crazy month so far. And who knows, maybe it'll keep going. But for me, I, I'm just continually in a state of uh, try to hang on for the ride and generate decent results in the short term, but also be prepared for this not lasting forever. <laughs> yeah, because on one hand, it's it's like you're excited that there's these people that are you know excited about investing, they're interested in investing. But it sounds like what gives you discomfort is not so much that they're in now interested in investing these people who may not have been, you know, who are now opening up new accounts and whatnot. It's just that it's they're you're worried about what the, uh, I guess you say the strategy that's being put in place and how that might affect, you know, what you're looking at and, and driving up some valuations on companies that you might be looking at as well. I mean, it, I'm, I'm projecting, I feel like a little bit. No, but, you know, that's right. I mean, am I not? Okay. The, the answer is that when you dig deep and this isn't a knock on them, it's, it's just an experience and not really knowledge about what they're doing, that there is no strategy. Yeah, I heard a comedian on a podcast that I listen to a lot who never talks about markets and investing. He was talking about, you just hold the line, buy AMC. And the person said back to him, like, well, well, then what happens? And he's like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's like crush the shorts is what we're doing here, but it's it, it's not investing. It's not, this has no good end result, basically. So, and this is, they're not bad lessons to learn as long as people are being, you know, reasonable with how much money they're putting on the table. But yeah, um, it's it seems to me like a time where you, you want to make sure you're appropriately positioned for what may or may not happen in the next year or two. <laughs> so that's a I have to, I'm going to compound on that comment right there. You know, I mean, so for you, what what are you doing in the event some things do turn? You know, let's say in the next year or two, or even beyond. You know, what 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 are some of the things that you're setting yourself up for just in case that happens? So part of it for me is always, I mean, the valuation work is kind of, you know, the last part of this, this whole chain. Hopefully, if I'm doing my job correctly, I'm, I'm partnered with people who are focused on the long term, who are capable in high quality businesses, all that stuff that everybody says. Um, and part of it is just accepting the reality of short term volatility and hopefully being partnered with people who would take advantage of it if, if they're given the opportunity to do so. I think of, you know, someone like booking went into March with a great balance sheet. And no matter how hard hit their business was in the short term, it was never really uh, existential threat for them. 
So, and you know, they, they can do other things when that happens if, if, if they're opportunistic. And I feel the same way about Microsoft or Berkshire, the other things that I, that I own in size. So outside of that, just ensuring they continue to keep that, that posture, that conservative setup, um, it's just continuing to run the numbers. And, you know, for me, it's, hey, Microsoft at 200, Microsoft at 250, 300. Is there, is there a point here where for me, it makes sense to take a little bit off the table? Am I required to make too many assumptions five, 10 plus years into the future about what this business will look like. And again, Microsoft's an instructive example because 10 years ago, it looked very different than how it does today. And 10 years before that, it looked very different than how it did 10 years ago. So I think about that a lot. And I think it's, you know, Chipotle is another really good example. I, I, I joked about it recently that, hey, you know, they're starting to talk about international expansion again. Like you can really get the story going. This is, this was already the playbook at Chipotle a handful of years ago. It just didn't work. Doesn't mean it won't work this time around, but it's just funny to see how these stories and narratives can really drive stock prices. And for me, I, I kind of want to fade those in both directions. All right. So then I have an, another question I have to ask is what's some of the most outlandish narratives that you've seen thus far? You know, in, in you know, as we're hitting these all-time highs and, and some of these companies that are, you know, really, I mean, they're trading at their all-time high. I mean, what what what's been some of those narratives that you've seen that you're just like, Oh, like like a Chipotle. Like, are there more Chipotle examples like that? Yeah, you know that's the hard part in all this. There's almost always a kernel of truth in the ideas, and especially when the companies are small, it's easier to you know something's at five billion. <coughs> that's a lot easier to make the math work eventually than if something's five hundred billion. So that makes it difficult. But I, something like Chipotle, the price just gets to a crazy level. I mean, it's probably trading at. 30 or 40 times earnings, assuming things go really well for the next five years. And that's far from a certainty. I think another area is probably sports betting. I get that there will be a lot of adoption as it becomes legalized. The question will be, is it actually going to be a good business? And I do think that there's a real risk that a lot of what's potentially there will just get competed away and gamblers will uh, have loyalty until somebody offers them a good deposit bonus somewhere else. <laughs> um, so it's customers who will probably leave pretty quickly if somebody else offers them money. And I just wonder how you make a good business out of that because it's 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 not simple. But for now, everybody can say the TAM is X and every company will somehow have 30% share of that market. So you, know, you can get to crazy valuations. But for some of them, it might work out collectively. I have a feeling that it probably won't. You know, see, in all seriousness, I thought bookies might unionize at some point, you know, like, is, is that, 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 you know, could happen, <laughs> right? I mean, we should get Francisco on here to talk about this. We were chatting about that on our episode, too. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the standard line for anybody who doesn't know this, you've never been to Vegas or anywhere, the standard line is really minus 110, which means about 110 bucks to win 100 if it's, if it's an even money bet, basically. So right. obviously the bookie tries to balance their book and they make, they make that spread. I've always thought that if this all becomes more efficient and it can be done more easily, that maybe that spread compresses. I'm not sure we've actually seen it anywhere, but time will tell. I think. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. we'll see. So cool. And real quick, are you are you a shareholder in uh, Chipotle? I am not. I maybe maybe my hatred for it is just bitterness because I bought it. I think I bought, I think I bought it at like two fifty or something when it was really getting ugly, and then they hired Brian Nickel, the guy from Taco Bell, and everybody loved him and. 
got a nice short-term pop and I thought, well, this is starting to look a little bit expensive and it's probably tripled since then. So <laughs> that worked out well. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I mean, do you still eat Chipotle? I guess that's also, I do. that's probably a better question. Okay, cool. I had it for I, lunch today. So my hatred doesn't go that far. <laughs> I almost had it for lunch today too, to be honest with you. You know what? I, I always get the bowl and then I, and then I get soft taco and a hard tacos on the side and then make it like kind of like a little, uh, I kind of do like a Taco Bell version of a, a cheesy gordita crunch, but we digress. Well, um, as much as I as much as I knock them for the valuation, it, it should be said, and, and I do try to say this in my articles. If anybody in that space has figured out the pandemic and and made their business better for it, it's Chipotle. They've they've nailed mobile ordering. They've had great success getting rewards members. They're doing stuff with Chipotle now. Chipotle lanes now, basically, you know, just not even just people pull up and get their food, basically drive through. They're they're figuring out how to make their model more efficient, improving throughput as a result. And as a customer, it makes it easier to go there two or three times a week as opposed to one. So I certainly give them credit for what they've done. I just think the market might may have taken it a little bit too far. All right. Well then, okay. One follow-up question, not on Chipotle, but in general, I mean, what are some other businesses that you've seen that have really been successful as a result of the really adjusting their models or in way in which they're they're just servicing customers since the pandemic took place, what what are a few of those? I don't know how directly true this is for Microsoft. I mean, they're they're just knocking the cover off the ball right now. I think a lot of that was them really appreciating who they are and what they mean to their customers, and really really ramping up their investments to to be in that space and be you know that true. IT company for everybody they deal with from SMBs all the way to the largest companies in the world. So I think they've, they've continued to do that very well. Um, you know, I think other businesses, maybe not directly the pandemic as much, but someone like Yelp has, has also kind of evolved their business. In my opinion, it's always been, it was a review platform, but it was never really a business. And they tried to figure out a business with a sales force and it never really worked. It never really worked that well. So they've kind of evolved that over time and they've, they've changed their focus a little bit and stuff like home and local services. So I think that's a company that's also, and again, they, they came into the pandemic with a strong balance sheet as well. So they, they had the flexibility to, to kind of keep running and deal with obviously massive short-term hits to, to traffic on the platform when the pandemic first really set in. But I, I think they're another example of a company that continues to evolve and is doing a good job in what's not an easy situation. I mean, it's, it's it's been hard to find a business. It's taken probably a decade, but I think they're getting closer than they than they were. Got it. All right. So, and, and real quick, are you are you a shareholder in Yelp? Yeah, I have a small position in Yelp. Sorry, I need to start saying these things. No, no, it's all good. It's all <laughs> I, you know. The uh, 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 Brandon Bailo from uh, uh, at the Market Plunger. He he when when I was on his show, he joked. He's like, yeah, man. Like now, whenever I go out into the world, like he was telling his girlfriend, uh, you know, they went to Starbucks. He's like. Hey, do you want a Starbucks? Full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder. So that 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 just that warms my heart that that's because like I feel like I gotta make t-shirts. Like you say a name, it's just like full disclosure, I am not a shareholder. I think that's I think that's the next evolution of Planet Microcamp. But um, yeah. so Alex, to take uh I, I want to take a step back because as I said, usually what how we start most of these shows is getting your background, how you got passion for investing. So I like to go there. So you know. What's your background and how'd you, where did your passion for investing uh, uh, start? So uh, probably the, without going all the way back to when I was born and all that boring stuff, uh, but I went to college at the University of Florida 
And when I went there, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. My dad's a plumber. So I just thought I'll do building construction because what else am I going to do? So I started doing that and I quickly realized, yeah, it's not the, not the path I want to go down. Uh, around that same time, a couple of buddies and I started uh, a ticketing platform, which is essentially similar to StubHub, but exclusively for college tickets, because at that time, and I assume this is still true now, there were, there were different tickets for college students versus just the general public. So this platform was basically built specifically to be a place to buy and sell tickets for students. Uh, so we did that for a while. And, you know, I think that kind of speaks to this, to the interest I have kind of in business and finance in general. Uh, that eventually went by the wayside. Uh, running a business when you're in college and don't have any money is a bit of a difficult task, or it was, was for us. Uh, but anyway, so around that time, probably sophomore, junior year, I, I switched my major to finance and I stumbled across the Berkshire letter somehow. I'm not even really sure. Um, but a buddy and I spent most of the summer in the library just reading about investing and you know talking with each other. And the, the following year, we drove from Gainesville up to Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, which is, I think it's 20 or 25 hours each way. So it's not a, not a short drive. Um, and we, so we drove there, went to the meeting. And as, as far as I remember, we basically went back right afterwards. So we drove a long way to see a, a couple hour shareholder meeting, but I think I've been hooked pretty much ever since then. And yeah, since then I've worked at uh, RIAs, investment advisors. So, and I've always just been in, been in research roles, which for me is, you know, it's funny, you go into job interviews and people say, so where do you, you know, what do you want to do in five years? You want to be running this place? What's your vision? And for me, it's like, well, I just, I like doing the investing stuff. <laughs> I like researching companies and I, I like the input in that process, but that's, that's what I like. So that's about it. Very cool. So where, where are you at currently right now? I mean, I, listen, you're semi-anonymous, so I, I know you may or may not say what, what you're up to currently, but you know, you write for Google Focus, you know, so what, what are some of the things you're up to? Yeah, so I, I work for a firm in Georgia, Southeast US. Um, yeah, I write articles for Guru Focus still, and you know, I record a record a podcast every once in a while where I try to, you know, there's a bunch of good podcasts like you have with with guests, and I, I try to do it more where I just either talk about individual names or I have people on, and it's just us talking about you know Disney, Spotify, whatever it might be. So <laughs> I have fun doing that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out exactly what to do with all this writing stuff, but we'll see. We'll see where that goes in the coming months and years. Very cool. Well, listen, I'm waiting. I'm I'm good to go for that invite now. I'm all caught up. Not on Mandalorian yet, but I'm caught up on Wandavision, and I've literally watched every geek video, which I have sent to Francisco as well. So you should have us on to like geek out. This will have nothing to do with the financial impact of the company by any means, but if you want us to like be on and and geek out about stuff, I. Actually, we should have Andrew Walker come on too from Rangeley. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'd love that. Francisco tells me about once a week how I need to watch Mandalorian. I've never seen the Star Wars movies. I, I'm a huge for someone who owns Disney stock and in, in pretty good size. Uh, I'm a disgrace to to the Marvel uh, Lucasfilm universe. So I apologize. Oh <laughs> but God. I love did Pixar you? movies, so I guess I make okay. up for it with that. Got you. Did, did you <laughs> at least read the Bob Iger book? I mean, come on. I did. I did. Okay. It was a very that was an easy book. read. That's an easy read. Yeah. That, was, that, that one took me like a weekend. It was, and I yeah, don't read the, much anymore. The part about him buying, I mean, the, the whole book was good, but the part about buying Pixar for me was really eye-opening in terms of how, and it's funny to think, Berkshire owned Disney because they got it through the Cap Cities ABC deal. They got Disney shares and they sold it in the late 90s. And I've always wondered why would, you know, Buffett spoke about Disney publicly and he's usually had pretty 
uh, glowing things to say about pricing power and brand and all that stuff. And it's funny to think in hindsight why he sold. And I think what Iger says in there is probably has to do with the reason why they just, they lost their way. And I think Iger specifically said, if we don't buy Pixar, this company is in deep trouble. And it might've been what he was seeing. I've always found that interesting, but anyways. That, that's super fascinating. Okay. We're going to save that topic for a whole other show because that <laughs> on its own is pretty damn fascinating. So, so for those who may not have, have heard, you know, cause look, I found you from the interview that you did with Toby. It was fantastic. I highly recommend everybody go and listen to Toby's interview with Alex. Um, so you briefly talked about this on there as well, but love to know what your investing philosophy is in general. I'd say my philosophy at a high level is first of all, concentrated. I, I think like a business owner, the top holdings I have now are, are things like Berkshire, Microsoft, Disney, and I, I didn't own Disney directly, but I own 21st Century Fox beforehand. But I've owned those first two names I've owned for close to 10 years, and they've been large positions for basically that whole time. And now Disney, if you include Fox, I've owned that for probably three or four years. So I, I, I tend to look for things where I can make them sizable positions and I can hold them for very long periods of time, which obviously you know, limits the investable universe a bit. Um, so that's probably where I start. Then I also have a bunch of other areas that I follow and not always doing things in, like retail would be an example, companies like Costco and Dollar Tree, Dollar General, Walmart. It's just a space that to me is interesting. And I feel like if I follow it for long enough that maybe at some point, one or two opportunities will will fall into my lap. So I do that as well. But yeah, at a high level, it's it's really focused on high quality businesses, high quality management, staying power, you know, all the stuff that people always, always talk about. But it's, it's again, you think about a period like February or March, the idea that Microsoft or Berkshire were going down was literally a non-existent concern. And it, it, it didn't mean anything to their businesses. If anything, it's a positive because they can repurchase shares or buy, buy competitors or you know, anything they can do to make their business stronger. They're, it's just the way they're set up. So I, I view them as, you know, inevitables in a sort of way. Um, and then in, in, a, in addition to that, sometimes I'll do smaller things that I, that I think can play in the portfolio. But honestly, I've probably got hurt doing more of that stuff than, than truly benefited from doing that stuff. So I've, I've tried to actively move away from doing that. And really, you know, Mike Mitchell, who's ignore narrative on Twitter, he, he posts, I'm, I'm so glad that he's around now because he's relatively new to the FinTwit space as far as I know, but he posts his monthly updates and everything and shows his portfolio. And for someone like me to, to see somebody with five positions and the top two or 50% or you know whatever it might be, it just so aligns with that idea of really being a business owner. I mean, if you, if you own three real businesses and they're good businesses, to me, that's plenty diversified. So I don't know why I do it any differently with with public security. So I try to try to push myself in that direction as much as possible. Very good. So, you know, in that interview, actually in the title, you know, he said that, you know, you're never, quote unquote, never sell strategy more or less. So <laughs> I'd love to know some of your guidelines. You know, you mentioned you've alluded to it a little bit so far, but what are some of those never sell type uh, investing guidelines that, that you put in for yourself? I'd say the two biggest ones. Let's start with the the, the more painful ones first, or when a, when a story is not working out. And I've I've dealt with this many times, and I've probably navigated those situations relatively poorly. So hopefully, I'm learning and getting better. But I come back to this John Hampton post, uh, the gentleman from Bronte Capital, the idea of 
you know, when is it, when does averaging down not work essentially? And I think in, in, in my case, there's situations where I've owned a stock, let's say it was at 40 and I thought it was worth 50 and they report a crappy quarter and it goes to 30 and I go, well, I still think it's worth 42. So the gap to intrinsic value is wider now than it was previously. So I'm going to keep owning this or buy more. I think I've found that for me, I get caught in traps doing that. It it just hasn't worked. Um, So that's one thing I try to think about when things are going negatively to just not be stubborn or honestly, in some ways, you need to step back from the numbers and kind of reassess the entire thesis. This is actually a good business. Do I need to, do I need to get out and look at this with a pair of fresh eyes? So that's on on one end. On the other end, when when things are doing really well, when the businesses are doing well and the stock prices are also doing really well, I tend to think about it in terms of can I realistically model where this business might be in five to 10 years and then apply some reasonable valuation to that? And where does that get me relative to today's stock price? What kind of returns will I get if that scenario plays out? And the logic there is that Again, I just don't think I can see 10 years into the future. I mean, I, I, and I look around at the businesses that are big today and, you know, just where they were at 10 years ago. And it, it just makes it so clear to me that uh, we fall into this false sense of belief that we can see what's going to happen. But it's, I mean, think about where Netflix was at 10 years ago, and it's completely upended the entire media space. Think about where Amazon was at where AWS was at, except all these things. It's So I don't want to give myself too short of a leash when I think I'm in a great business with great management and attractive long-term prospects. But I also, I also want to temper that just like I, just like I would on the other end of the spectrum. So. Gotcha. All right. Well, I, you know, it, you bring up an interesting point because there's a lot of uh, our, our, a lot of people that I interview on here are more like you in that long-term investor, maybe not never sell. I think everybody eventually wants to sell at some point, um, as you, as do you, of course. Um, but when they think about trying to project out companies in that five to 10 year ramp, you know, and that growth, I mean, that that is just, I mean, from a number standpoint, you can probably put something together and, and be able to reason out, okay, they might be able to get there from this. You know, but just from a philosophical standpoint, when you're assessing a company and you're saying, okay, I want to look five to 10 years out. Yeah, of course, 10 years, it's very impossible. But, you know, what are some of the things that you do try to do in order to help you get there so that you have that confidence to, hey, another downturn? I don't care. It's fine. You know, I might be buying more. So in terms of how I actually think about the numbers, is that what you mean? Yes. So I think about well, one, I think about stuff like Mobison's base rates book, which essentially shows, hey, here's companies that had 10 billion or more in revenues. Here's the track record of their ability to grow sales at all, to grow sales more than 5%, grow sales more than 10%, et cetera. So I think that gives you at least some framework to start thinking about, you know, what you're looking at. I also think at a high level, you know, if, if you think about a company like let's say Match Group, which could potentially dominate online dating or you know, Netflix. I think at a high level, you can at least get reasonable estimates on what can what can peak users be for this business? What can ARPU look like? You know, what can the margin profile look like? And a lot of times you, you won't have particularly great answers to some of these questions. It'll be really fuzzy. Um, but I think 
you can at least use those metrics to try to point you in the right direction and to start thinking about someone like Netflix, the range of outcomes might be so wide that you just say, you know, I, this just has to be really cheap for me to consider doing it. So it certainly can be difficult. I think it can help you at least think about it uh, with some with some logic behind the numbers, or at least so you have a real sense for what the assumptions are. So it's it's certainly not anything you can do with pinpoint accuracy, but I, I think at least it at least helps you start thinking about it correctly. Gotcha. So another question I have for you, you know, because look, we're a microcap show, right? We, you know, we 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 welcome on all. All, all, all investing philosophies and strategies, of course, but, you know, plan a microcap, it's in the name, we're going to keep it. And, and one of the benefits I would argue for the most part is that it's pretty easy to get ma- uh, access to management and to ask them a few questions, you know, and I, honestly, I'm kind of kicking myself that I've never even really asked this to anybody who's kind of more focused in the non-microcap area, but hey, better late than never to ask this question. You know, so when you're looking at some of these, you know, uh, companies that are a bit bigger, uh, and it's a little bit more difficult to have access to management. You know, how do you then evaluate that management that you've never had contact with, or pro- most likely never will? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe in your case, you might you might get in contact with them at some point. But um, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I usually don't have contact with them, which I, you know, I don't necessarily think is a negative. In some ways, I think it might be a positive. And you know, larger companies, obviously access to management might be limited to things like interviews they've done over time or, you know, comments on conference calls, shareholder letters, investor days, things like that. So I really want to dig up those uh, sources of kind of information and preferably going back, you know, at least five years if I have the opportunity to, if the CEO or manager has been around that long. And I want to get a clear sense for how they communicate with shareholders, how they communicate with their partners in the business. Are they are they straightforward? Do they tell me what I think matters? Are they focused on the right things? Obviously, do they have skin in the game? How are they compensated, et cetera? So I want to understand all that stuff. And, you know, I don't think if you go listen to someone like Satya Nadella on Microsoft's conference calls or you go read his book and you just think about how he got to where he is today and the kind of person he is. I think you can you can put together a pretty complete picture of this being the kind of person you want to partner with. And it doesn't take any technical. I mean, he talks about stuff on the conference call. I have no idea what he's talking about because I'm not a computer person by any stretch or you know a tech person. But I can understand how the things he's talking about, to the extent they actually you know, work and and do what they're saying they should, I can understand from a customer's perspective how they can really meet a need and and you know provide a lot of value. So on the other on the other end, I would think of, you know, I I wrote an article a long time ago about kind of the red flags that you look for with managers. And I pointed to a specific example of a of a CEO who wrote in his shareholder letter about how employees had donated, I think it was two hundred thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars to uh, hurricane relief in Haiti or somewhere, which is great. The only problem is that he didn't mes- mention the fact that they had lost like a billion dollars in a portion of the business that involved trading. And uh, it was a big number and it was important and it just simply didn't get mentioned at all. That's the kind of thing for me, it's basically full stop right there. Because if you're not treating me like a partner, when you're communicating with me, I can only imagine what you're doing when you're working behind closed doors. 
So a lot of it's really as simple. I mean, it's, it's like if you and I met and we started communicating for a while and I saw the things you wrote and the things you said, I think I can get a halfway decent picture of whether or not you're, you're someone I want to be associated with. So it's kind of that same framework. But the, it, to the extent that there's more you know, resources out there, more time with that person as a manager, obviously that helps to get a, a, a better sense for the track record. Got it. I mean, are you still, do you still, I mean, obviously uh, COVID right now, it's much more difficult to do this, but are you a big fan of going to, to the AGMs and trying to go to as many of them as you can? Is that, is that part of your process that you like to do as well? It's not something I've done too much. I mean, I've gone to the, the Berkshire meetings and I've gone to Markel meetings in the past, you know, some of the other ones, if you, I, I've watched Disney's for a handful of years and as people complaining about plastic bags and stuff like that, which may or may not be a worthwhile cause, but it's just not something I want to sit and listen to for an hour. So in, in general, I don't know how useful the information is out of, out of AGMs, but I definitely like shareholder letters. I definitely like investor day events. I feel like those are the primary ways that um, I can really get a sense for, for managers and companies. Got it. Now, I, I also wanted to bring up, bring back up Robinhood again, because you put out a couple of tweets in recent days, you know, just uh, with everything that went on and not just this year, you know, we had some horrible events that happened as a result of, of uh, some of their just lack of, of educating their customer base on how to use their platform. You know, I'd lo- love to kind of address some of that again so that we can keep bringing that. I think it's important to keep bringing it up just because it's, it, I think Anybody who's listening to this that may have just gotten their start or maybe new to Robinhood, you know, I, I, especially with the commercial that they just had on Super Bowl Sunday, talk about timing for that one, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'd love to give, get some of your thoughts on that. Maybe some some words of caution for those who might be listening to this right now. Yeah, so I should I should preface this all by saying one, I do not know, you know, the the full story. I don't know anything they've changed in the last couple of years, so. Um, I may be off base with some of what I say. Uh, that said, I've used the platform. I've seen what it is. It's clear. It's very gamified. You know, I, I, the quote from, I don't know if it was from the commercial or if the CEO just said it on his Twitter page. I think the quote was, we're basically all born investors. Um, I, I'm very squirm. And what's that? That was in the commercial? That, um, yeah. So there you go. Okay. So I... I can see both sides of this issue very clearly. I mean, I, I, I am not one for telling grown adults how to live their lives and how to do things. And if people want to buy XYZ security, sell XYZ security, that's on them. And I get that. At the same time, I think anybody who's been doing this for a while can clearly see how something like options needs to be out of the regular user's hands, especially when you get and start dealing with options that have huge notional values. Um, those things need to be very clearly presented to users so they can try to understand exactly what their exposures are, what their gain losses are, obviously on a net basis, as well as a gross basis. Um, you know, something I tweeted today, they, the Wall Street Journal article that was just written said that they didn't have any phone support. And firms like Fidelity and Schwab have 24-7 phone support. I think that's something that you probably need to have when you're talking about financial decisions that are very material to people's lives. So, and I should disclose, I own a small position in Schwab, which has nothing to do with this, but obviously I should say that. Um, so yeah, to me, it's it's recognizing that growth for your 
firm is fine to care about, but that can't be all you care about. And I think they need to seriously think about what they are and who the people are who are using their platform. And again, if, if people can make money in securities, I have no problem with that. I'm not trying to, this isn't my space to own or something, but it's, uh, I worry about what can go wrong with these things. And I think we've already started to see some of it and I worry that it could get much worse. So I hope they take their responsibility seriously. And I, I think there's real reasons to doubt whether or not they have done so, so far. Yeah. Same here. I, I, I agree with everything that you just said, Mike, just take the responsibility, just put more information out there. Who knows? I mean, maybe eventually we'll see uh, where, where people have to fill out kind of like a, like a quiz or something that get that will then get them to be able to start trading in options or something like that. I don't know. You just, this, this is, we just want to protect people, you know, and, and that's really this isn't new either. This isn't new. I've tried to get, I've, I've been, I'm a CFA. I've been investing for over a decade. I've tried to get options trading on Fidelity in the past at different times for God knows what reason I've never traded options, but I have tried in the past and I, they ask you serious questions about your experience. Actually, they blocked me either once or twice from getting certain levels of, and I don't even know what they were because, again, I don't trade options, but there needs to be something real there. You can't just throw people in a game where they're potentially gambling significant sums of money and not really knowing what they're doing. That's that's a, a bridge too far in my mind. Dude, I've been in the game for about the same amount of time as you. I don't even know options, but I'm still – it confuses the – part of my French, but it confuses the shit out of me to this day, man. Like, I, right. you know, so power to anybody that that, you know, look. If you can figure it out, you're you become informed and you make money, power to you. But for those who are just doing it because they saw somebody else do it, just please get educated. Please, please, please. It's hard. So I'm gonna do a quick transition because I got two fun questions that I want to ask you. So I've been liking the sports angle that I've been trying to do on a few a few shows recently. So this might take you a minute to think about it. So there's no pressure to like give an answer right away. But okay, your favorite team is clearly the Cleveland Indians, right? So <laughs> one of them we'll say. I'm also a big Cotton Hotspurs fan and a Ravens fan and a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> okay, okay, there you go. All right, so then I'll then okay, so okay, I'm gonna do this is a two part question. All right, name an investing experience that was like Cleveland Indians circa uh, 2015, okay, and also a Ravens experience circa 2012. All right. So that's Indians losing in game seven in the bot and the what was it, the top of the or bottom of the ten. Well, they were at home, so it was the 10th inning. And then it's a Ravens Super Bowl win. All right. So give us give us an investing experience that matches both of those potentially. I'm glad your your memory is a lot better than mine. I think I blocked some of these things out of my memory over time, or else it's just not that good. Um <laughs> good for you. <laughs> uh, it's a hard question. Um Hmm. Well, I would say in terms of a bad experience, I would say JC Penny is probably uh, the most painful experience I've probably had as an individual investor. And I think the most painful part of it all is that I fell into a bit of a trap and I fell into a story because I wanted to believe it as opposed to true. I mean, obviously in hindsight, it seems like insanity, but I think at the time of the investment, I probably could have seen the writing on the wall if I was a little bit more honest with myself. And I, I really thought about, you know, where, where my circle of competence is at and where I could be successful as an investor over time. So I think I kind of played in the wrong space for one, but
but I also fell in love with the narrative that I let other people do the research for me to a certain extent. And I fell back on their research and I rightly got, got bit in the behind for doing so. So it was a great lesson learned. It was definitely relatively expensive. Thank God I, I had no money then. So <laughs> that helps. Uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a painful lesson. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, I think curate's been one that for me was, it, it worked out really well. And that's, that's obviously helpful, but it's a less instructive part of the narrative. I think it, it was a situation that I, I talked with, uh, Mike Mitchell and Bill Brewster about it a, a decent amount. And it was something where, you know, with their help did the work in a relatively short period of time, uh, came to a conclusion and had the conviction to bet relatively big. So, you know, it feels, it feels good to do that sometimes, especially after a couple of years where, you know, it's nice owning a lot of Microsoft or something, but that, that feels like a decision that was made 10 years ago. So it's nice to, to at least have some activity every once in a while. And especially if it actually works out. So it, that felt good to do. Um, but yeah, maybe See, that, that, that experience sounds more like bucks this year. You know, like put <laughs> a short period of time and everything came together and now like, it's, a, it's a Super Bowl winner. You know, that, yeah. I think that's more comparable to because the Ravens in 2012, I mean, that was 12 years in the making right there. Right. Ray mm-hmm. Lewis's last ride, you know, yeah. uh, they had to draft Flacco. That took a couple of years. Right. So I feel like yeah. that was that that's that's more that's more this year, I think. But sorry. We OK, we'll say. I'm the I'm the Glazers, so I own the Bucks, and uh, Mike Mitchell or Brewster can be uh, Tom Brady, whichever one you want to pick. <laughs> so I'm I'm just the I'm just the guys who got lucky, and I managed to to partner with the right person. <laughs> well, hold on, uh, you know what? Okay, we'll compare it more to like uh, Tebow Gators, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. You were I think you were in school at that time, right? Yeah. yeah so that was so it. That, yeah. So that okay, we'll make that the the Tebow Championship years. How about that? Curate experience Great. is the Tebow Championship year. And also, arguably, the Bucks this year because you know we want to be current with our podcast, right? We got to be. Uh-huh. Uh, Super Super Bowl was yesterday. Like we got to be current. So uh, I don't. I don't remember much of that. Uh, the Tebow years either, but that's probably for a different reason. <laughs> when I was in college, so. <laughs> I mean, you know that you, you were talking about your story about that the, the company that you launched at the time, and it, it's it, that's such a good idea because I remember going like whenever you know when I was in high school trying to go to UCLA games. Like it was, it was so hard to get, but you, it was hard to get tickets. But what you would do is you would go park at the, at, at the Rose Bowl and you just wait for the students that were just, were either giving them away or will sell mm-hmm. them at like a slight premium. And then you're just sitting in the student section and it's a blast. It's actually yeah. more fun sitting over there. So it's yeah. cool that you guys created some kind of system to do that. That could have well, been national, it, man. We thought it was a good idea. And I, I think it had a chance to get some traction uh, where we really tripped up was, well, one, none of us knew how to build a website or any sort of system for the transacting. So we had to find someone. I think we went the Craigs, we went the Craigslist route, I think. And uh, yeah, uh, a couple thousand dollars later, I think we realized we didn't have a working website. So <laughs> good, good lesson learned. Good lesson. But we, we eventually got it off the ground and it lasted, I think it lasted maybe a year. Good stuff. It was right, too well, much work. Speaking of Super Bowl, like probably the number one commercial we saw in there was for Paramount Plus. Um, 
I'm actually a huge user of the CBS All Access. I'm, I've said this many times on the podcast. I'm a huge Big Brother fan, so I love. I always was using the CBS All Access. So look, I know I know you talk a lot about streaming. I I mean, you mentioned your shareholder in Disney, and, and I think a couple of other ideas that, that have streaming services now. Um, good buddies with Francisco. He's he's the. By the way, I don't know if anybody got my title for that episode. It was it was a, an ode to an Ozzy Osbourne uh, uh, song. But I, whatever, I digress. I'm gonna read. I'm gonna retweet that and see if anybody got it. But anyways, so wanted to get your thoughts on this one. I mean, I, I'm not sure if you're a shareholder in Viacom CBS or anything like that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how they're. I mean, it's pretty cool what they're doing, and I wonder if this might be a trend with some of these other, you know, streaming services that maybe have like you know focus on one thing and then maybe might want to expand beyond that. So, what, what are your thoughts on that? Let me ask you a question real quick before I answer it. How does CBS yes. All Access usage fit into your whole? whatever video consumption pie streaming video consumption pie is it the only service you use is it a second or third service for you it's only a summer service because that's when big brother's on <laughs> gotcha well i mean i so i, I think that's partly my answer to the question it's okay. going to be i feel like these services are going to have a problem because netflix has well established for whatever tens of millions of people we'll talk about the us since that's probably where this discussion is is most relevant and not being able to go go global is another big problem that these services have in terms of getting scale but let's focus on the us for a second i feel like netflix is is in a place where it's going to become the equivalent of turning on your tv at night to find something to watch which obviously is going to come with a lot of engagement a number a lot of hours on the platform presumably some pricing power because people will see the value there it, it'll it'll be a relatively consistent service with pretty low churn, and I, they don't talk about this too much directly, but I think they've implied that their their churn is is quite low now. So for these other platforms, Disney in my mind is really unique, and they've had a ton of success. One because their brands are are so valuable, they're so loved and so well known, everything, and obviously they have a, a pretty wide collection of brands now. And I also think that ESPN will play into that in a certain way as time goes on, but we'll see how that evolves. But obviously they've had a ton of success early and I I would assume, or based on the data I've seen, I think you're starting to see better engagement there as well. So just getting signups or paid subs even is one thing, getting people to actually use the platform and stick around is another. These other services, I, I think they'll struggle more to find their way into people's lives and to become something that they really care about and even to the extent they can do that, I think part of the issue that they'll see is people turning on and off like you might, for example, because I'm coming around when a big show's on or I'll sign up for Peacock when the Olympics are on. But then besides that, I don't care. So you need a, you need a way to solve that problem. And I think it'll be relatively difficult. I also think the other problem is if, if, if platforms like Roku are going to become dominant and so important in the future, the economics for a Paramount Plus or somebody else who is not in a position at Netflix to say, listen, we don't need signups to your platform. People can sign up with us directly and we're not paying you a cut. If you agree with that logic and it's going to play out that way, that piece of content on Paramount Plus is less valuable to Paramount than it would be to Netflix if they own that identical piece of content. So I think you're going to run into a problem where the smaller players are going to need to get larger in order to ensure that the economics on their next dollar or next hour of content production can generate the kind of returns or even have a chance of generating the kind of returns that they would at a scaled media platform, one with global scale, most likely. 
So I just think it becomes really challenging. And, you know, someone like, like Comcast, which I'm a shareholder in, they can talk about Peacock signup numbers all they want, but it's not a real metric. It doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything, at least to me. And we'll see where they're at in a year or two. I think part of my belief is that someone like an NBCU will probably look to get larger, um, whether that's doing a deal with a Time Warner or I don't know if Discovery or some of these other guys play into the mix somehow. But but it, I think Netflix and Disney have a clear path forward from here. For the other for the other players, it's less clear to me what they do to stay relevant. And I, as I've commented elsewhere, I think Disney might actually be a winner in some of these cases as companies like CBS Viacom and NBC Universal, if they want to ramp their entertainment programming spend, which it seems like they're probably going to want to do. And if they try to go global, obviously that'll be expensive as well. I'm curious what this will mean in terms of their willingness to keep bidding on sports rights in the U S and they might, they might, they might keep the NFL. They might keep a handful of marquee events that are important to them, whether it's the Olympics or, you know, us open golf or something. I think it becomes harder for them to continue to bid on stuff. That's less important. And for Peacock, that might even mean something like the EPL, English Premier League. So it, it it becomes, those decisions become harder in my eyes. And it's, you know, when you had NBC Sports, that's one thing. But if it's just USA Net now, are you really building a brand? Is that something that's going to work in a D2C world as a, as a, a sports platform? I mean, it might, but I think ESPN Plus and ESPN will have a similar advantage in that space that Disney Plus and Netflix have in the entertainment programming space. So I think there's a lot of a lot of difficult decisions to be made by these companies, and maybe they can thread that needle. But I'm personally not as confident as some others might be, and I say that as someone who owns Comcast shares. Yeah, no, I literally was just going to bring up that quite when it comes to sports rights because I feel like that's. I mean, we talked about the Bob Iger book. I mean, like that was a huge. That was a huge topic within the book is talking about how the importance of sports rights and having, and that's why they ended up doing the deal for ESPN and, and those tough negotiations that they would have, because they understood that they needed those sports rights. It was just so important. And actually, you know, you asked me, you know, what I use CBS All Access for. It's also for the convenience. So that like, let's say I'm out Sunday morning, you know, we're in LA. So the games are at 10 AM. I'm walking mm-hmm. my daughter. I can have, a, I can have the NFL game on. While, you know, we're going on a nice walk for a half hour, I can have it on the phone and then, you know, whenever I get home, get put the game back on. You know, so mm-hmm. it's, it, it seems like that's really the, the, the key issue here is that, you know, how are they going to move forward with all these different sports rights, you know, and also thinking about the popularity of those sports, too. It's like obviously the NFL and the NBA are two most popular in the U.S., but like how can you parlay, you know, potentially bringing back the, you know, MLB, our, our pastime and, and even the NHL or MLS, you know, mm-hmm. MLS soccer has gotten really, really popular, you know, so. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote an article. I think I wrote it two years ago now, maybe a little bit more. And I wrote uh, the future of ESPN Plus basically is about like, what is ESPN going to become? And I think the MLS deal, as you mentioned, that's one example. MLS is just on ESPN Plus now, or it's on ESPN as well, but they shut down their direct-to-consumer offering that they had. And they essentially folded into ESPN Plus. And I think as you as you think about these niche in the tail offerings like European sports rights, Syria and Bundesliga, things like that. Or you think about SEC basketball games and football games that are not being aired on previously on CBS. I, I think ESPN plus has a chance to really 
play a role for the true sports fans and meet a need that actually was not that well met in the prior world, which is kind of crazy to think about considering how valuable sports are. But if you lived in LA and you were, you know, an Indians fan before, or, you know, you liked a certain basketball team, you could get out of market packages, but even that wasn't, you couldn't watch it on your phone. I'm almost certain. So I, th- I think ESPN plus is a huge opportunity there. I don't think it's winner takes what take all by any stretch, but I feel like they're really well positioned relative to some of these other companies, especially as their focus may go to other areas. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I wouldn't say soccer is a niche sport, but in the U.S., it's still it's right there. It's right there. Yeah. You yeah. know, but it'd be pretty cool to see if like they, they bring on some other niche sports, you know, like surfing. I don't know. I'm surfing. So it'd be cool to see, them, mm-hmm. you know, bringing on surfing if they can somehow figure out their formatting. But like as an LAFC fan. I mean, that was the only some of the only times I could even watch the games because otherwise it was they have a deal with YouTube, so they had a YouTube premium, and I'm like, I'm not paying for YouTube premium. But you know, when they'd right. be on ESPN Plus, it was the best, you know, because I had mm-hmm. ESPN Plus super cheap. But, was that deal was that going on this past season? Do you know, or were those games on ESPN Plus? The LAFC games, yeah, it, it was like it, it was on both. So okay, so sometimes sometimes it would be on ESPN Plus. I think for the non. Um, could be totally wrong on this, but I mean, from what I assumed, it was for the games that were away games. It was on ESPN Plus, and then maybe home games. It was on the YouTube Premium side. And, and I'll tell you right now, I didn't pay. I didn't watch one YouTube Premium game, despite really wanting to watch this game. But mm-hmm. it was on the ES. But on the ESPN Plus one, it was great. Seven thirty, you see a Sounders Sounders LAFC. Like it was nothing but. I'm a mm-hmm. I'm a big proponent of MLS. I think everybody should be fans of MLS. <laughs> we should bring, build up U.S. soccer. This is important. Let's create a good enough team so we get Pulisic back. Okay, like that's there really what needs to happen. Wow, that's going to take a little while, but I'll, I'll support you. Yeah, to say to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. All right, dude. Well, I, I I think we're there. I mean, look, we I think we could keep going for for hours. Just I think at this point we would now just be bullshitting about sports. And I know people would love to hear that, but at the end of the day, you know, it's an investing show, so. You know, to, to close this out here, what, what would you let, let's get some advice that you'd have for potential new investors that uh, just getting their start right now? You know, what's some advice you have? For them? I would probably say to to be really honest with yourself as you start playing this game and what you're doing and having having really. I don't know if objectives is the right word, but a clear thought process for what exactly you think this game is and what you're trying to do. And I, and I partly say that as someone, as I, as I mentioned earlier, who's been talking to a lot of friends lately who have never had any interest in investing or in businesses really. And, and now they're investing or they think they're investing, but really what they're doing is just trading and they're watching stock prices and all that. And it's fine to do, you know, much like gambling. I don't really have a problem with it as long as people have it under control and, and they know what they're getting set themselves into. But I think this is a time where you can really learn about some interesting businesses. For example, I mean, the Fang businesses are, it's been a really interesting last five years or 10 years even where these huge companies have just continued to get bigger. And it's, it's really interesting to study and think about those businesses. And when you go to buy a share, thinking about what exactly you're buying and what that means and what's going to determine your long-term success or failure. So just really thinking like a business owner, as opposed to someone who's, just obsessed with, okay, pre-market trading's open. Are we up or down? What's happening? Like 
just kind of putting that stuff in the back of your mind and, and living your life and not being obsessed with these short-term stock prices. So I would, I would just try to take a step back from a world that is always, everything's breaking news. Now you got to check everything every two seconds, which I'm as guilty as anybody on Twitter, but just try to step back from that and really become an investor. Uh, so Alex, with, with that, you know, where can my audience go and find everything they need to know to follow you? And I think it's just following on Twitter, right? Yeah, best place by Twitter, uh, TSOH underscore investing. And then I write Guru Focus articles, which I generally link to. But if you go on Guru Focus, I'm sure there's a way you can you can get email uh, updates on those as well. Very cool. Well, Alex, thanks so much for joining me today. This is a lot of fun. I, I have a feeling you'll be back on, whether it's this or on the Investors Roundtable. We'll shoot the shit more on sports and streaming and, you know, just uh, maybe what 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 makes us feel comfortable looking five to 10 years out. I'm, I'm sure that'll be <laughs> at some point, but I really do appreciate you taking the time, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well-equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.